If you could open your Bible, please, to Hebrews chapter 10. I'll be reading and preaching for you today from Hebrews 10, uh, uh, verses 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning empty-handed and ask for you to fill us up this morning. Open our eyes, open our mind to receive your word. Give us faith that we so much lack. Give us confidence in your word so that we may not lean on own understanding as we approach your holy scripture. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you want to know the substance of a man, what that man holds as truth, the best and the most poignant moment to hear that from that man is on his deathbed. Sometimes we think we have the truth. Sometimes we think we know certain aspects of life and its reality. But only at the moment of death, in your deathbed, when you know that you have only a few seconds before you can close your eyes and open it and then meet your maker, then that truth will be held either to a high standard or completely given up. Martin Luther was one such man. On his deathbed, he said, We are all beggars. This is true. We are mere beggars pointing other beggars where to find bread. Martin Luther realized that he has nothing to offer, but only by the grace of God, what he is given by God, he can offer to other people or just show them and point to them where to find this bread. But how do you know that you are a beggar? How do you know that you are bankrupt? How do you know how, how much you are before God, standing completely naked and helpless and poor and as a debtor? as the title of our sermon today speaks, debtors who cannot pay their debts. Well, there is a story of uh, R.C. Sproul uh, talking about how he uh, illustrates how to know the truth and how to find that truth. Um, He joined one time Weight Watchers, and the very first session of the Weight Watchers, the moderator gave everybody in the audience a straw. And he wanted to demonstrate what is that straw that broke the camel's back? What is that one thing that happened recently that made you realize, I need to go join Weight Watcher to lose some weight or get in shape? And uh, R.C. Sproul said, the one thing that really broke the camel's back for me is the mirror or mirrors in general. He avoided them. He hated them. Didn't want to see his body in a mirror. And uh, when he would go shopping with his uh, wife, 
even just the shadow of his body and his belly just caused him to be irritated and he decided to do something about it. For us as Christians, this mirror that we can see ourselves in, this mirror that we can see our ugliness in, and our depravity in, is the Word of God. It is nothing but, or nothing short of, the law of God Himself. The message today is about debtors who, if left without a rescue, will be crushed, or ultimately are crushed under that debt, without any hope of solvency. There are debtors who cannot file for chapter 11, I don't know if it's 11 or 13 now, you just cannot absolve this debt. Something has to happen for this debt over your shoulder to be taken care of and paid for. Before I move on to the message for today, I want to remind us, and especially the visitors today, of what the main theme of the book of Hebrews so far is. We've been um, uh, preaching and teaching from the book of Hebrews for several or a few months now. The main point, the main point of the book of Hebrews is the excellency of Christ as our great high priest. He is greater than, and you can fill in the blank, He is greater than angels. He is greater than Moses. He is greater than Melchizedek. He is greater than Joshua. And certainly greater than any and all old Levitical priests. And we also learned that we have such great salvation. How shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? Jesus Christ himself is the founder of said salvation. We also know that We need to consider Jesus Christ, consider Christ, our apostle, our prophet, our great high priest. Since we have this confession, let us hold fast to this confession. Let us strive to enter his rest. The Sabbath or the the Lord's day that we enjoy every week, it is nothing but a shadow of the great rest that awaits us. Hold fast our confession. Jesus Christ is after the order of Melchizedek. His priesthood is eternal. There is no beginning and there is no end to it. And we learned a lot about shadows and realities from the book of Hebrews. We learned about the tent of the meeting. We learned about the holy place and the most holy place. And what pieces of furniture are there. And they all are not arbitrarily designed by God who took extreme measures to make sure Moses gets the exact, absolute details of every piece of furniture there. But they're all a shadow. They, are, uh, they represent beautiful, greater, complete reality. But in and of themselves, they point to something even greater. So, draw near, hold fast, and strive to enter. And today's message is a continuation of that argument. There is nothing um, extraordinarily different than what we have learned in the last nine chapters. It's a continuation of the argument that old covenant was for a time, but a new covenant is better. Old is a shadow. It is not the substance of the great things to come. Both parts, the old covenant and the new covenant, are essential part within the story of redemption that God Almighty ordained for us. Just imagine you bought tickets to go to watch a play with your family and it's, uh, you've been anticipating this for a long time and you go in and it's a, there's Act 1 and Act 2. You watch Act 1, you enjoy it, you learn some things and you get up and say, okay, that was great, let's go home. doesn't make any sense. 
And by the same token, if you decide to skip Act 1 and just go to Act 2 to just get the finale of that play, you will have missed a lot of things and so, some things will not have made a full and complete sense. That is the uh, way of the Old and the New Testament, the Old and the New Covenant. Both are essential parts of the story of redemption that God has ordained for us. And here in those four verses, and I have to say I struggle quite a bit about where to make the cut of the preaching today compared to the next Sunday. And um, I decided to focus on the first four verses, knowing that there is even more and more good news to be uh, discussed and preached, hopefully in the next several Sundays. Uh, but the argument here for the writer of Hebrews is to lay low the Levitical priesthood or the Levitical laws. Now, I have to caution you. When you say law, I'm not talking about every law that God ordained in the Old Testament. When God handed Moses to the Israelites, his law, there is moral law and there is ceremonial law. The ceremonial law are now obsolete. We are not called to go ahead and find bulls and goats and make sacrifices, even though some people still practice these things. These are obsolete because we have now an ultimate sacrifice in the person of Jesus Christ. But the moral law continues. The moral law is good, is perfect, and continues with us right now still, of course. So here he is laying low the Levitical law in order to exalt and elevate the excellency of the permanent and completed and finished work of Christ, which we will hear more about in the coming weeks. I have three points in my sermon today, and hopefully by the grace of God, I'll be able to finish them uh, in, uh, on time. First point is sin, sacrifice, and salvation in the Old Testament. The second point, the conscience of believers. And the third point is remember sin or forget sin. Which is it? The first verse here as we read, For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Again, we'll talk about the shadows and realities again. Calvin says, Under the law was shadowed forth only in rude and imperfect lines what is under the gospel set forth in living colors and graphically distinct. I'm blessed to have children who are uh, artistically uh, gifted, and I see uh, some of them drawing some portraits of some people that I know. And I saw recently uh, Jeremiah drawing some um, uh, soccer player, and I, I, I can tell from the outline, just a rude, uh, it, it calls rude not like rude in a bad way, but rude as in just uh, not very distinct way. You can almost tell this is going to be Messi, the famous soccer player. There was no colors yet, no details yet, no distinction yet to the, to the face, but you can tell it is going to be this person. So the Old Testament Levitical laws, as Calvin puts it, it is shadows of rude and imperfect lines, what is going to be very colorful, very vivid in the person of Jesus Christ. That does not mean that the ceremonial laws were not profitable or useful. I don't want you to go with that, go out of you saying that, this ceremonial law was a waste of time. God ordained it. He actually put extreme details to Moses for the people of God in that time, in that dispensation, to actually perform these 
um, duties. If God said it, it's good. If God said it, it's perfect and a divinely um, it communicated to the, to the people of God at that time. So there is goodness and profitability for that time. Calvin also says, to both the Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, which is us, the same Christ is exhibited. We do not preach two Christ. We do not preach two saviors. We preach one Christ. Amen. We also preach the same righteousness from everlasting to everlasting. There is no two ways to that. There is no two ways to sanctification. Calvin says it's the same Christ is exhibited, the same righteousness, the same sanctification and salvation. And the difference only is in the manner of painting or setting them forth. Why would God choose this model of revelation? Does it bother you sometimes to think when you read the story of redemption, why did it happen this way? Why didn't Christ come from the very beginning? Why did we have to wait all that time until Christ arrives for a new covenant to begin? And the answer, eloquently, I can tell you in, in greater humility, I have no idea. I just don't know. All I know that was, according to Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, again, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. So I don't have a, a very clear answer, but I can tell you four words that describe the story of redemption. And I think I would like you guys to memorize those. Somebody taught me those four words, and I'm imparting them back to you. Because I think it will be a great discussion when you talk with people, believers or unbelievers alike. The history of redemption, the story of redemption. Four words. Good, bad, new, and perfect. Good. God created everything good. Then sin happened. Then Adam messed up. That's bad. And from that moment on, until the arrival of Christ on the surface of, of the earth... In God incarnate. It was a battle and uh, anguish and ups and downs and highs and lows of the people of God as they continued their sanctification before God. And then when Christ came, when the new covenant arrived, that is the new. But it's not yet perfect. That is the best news that I can tell you today. It is not yet perfect. Perfection awaits us when we are glorified. Let us define sin because this passage talks about sin, talks about sacrifices, and it also talks about a way to bridge the gap between a sinful man and a holy God. What is sin? First John 5.17 There is nothing better than that definition as the scripture tells us. All unrighteousness is sin. All unrighteousness is sin. That definition is under attack today because it depends on the situation for many, many people and for many other worldviews what sin is. Uh, you don't tell me what is wrong or what is right. Uh, it is how I feel or it is what the society tells me today which may be different than what I heard last week and, or different than what I hear I will hear next week. But the scripture tells us and we stand on that. All unrighteousness is sin. Any lack of conformity to a standard, and the standard we know is God Himself. Missing the mark, 
First John 3 says, Sin is lawlessness. There are many different words in the Bible to describe sin. Wickedness, transgression, iniquity, which basically means twistedness, moral badness, evil, godlessness, hatred, againstness, againstness, or animosity towards God. It is a cosmic treason against God. How do we then know we are a sinner? How do you know that you're a sinner? How do you know that you have broken the law of God? The law of God tells us that we have broken His word. It's the mirror that R.C. Sproul was talking about earlier. We are born in sin. We are born with propensity to sin. One example of how to prove to someone logically that we are born in sin, if, if that person that you're talking to believe that the wage of sin is death, why do miscarriages happen? Why would a pre-born child die, maybe for medical reason, in the womb of his mother? That is death that is happening before even that child is born. That is a proof to me that we are born in sin. Sin is deadly, and I want you guys to remember that. It is not to be taken lightly. Take it lightly, take it semi-seriously every once in a while, and you are asking for trouble. There's an example in the Bible, and I, I think, I don't recall uh, which uh, prophet mentioned that, but maybe somebody can help me here. But it's, uh, it's almost like if you're, uh, you're running away from savage animals all the way in, in, in town, like lions and all these beasts, you're running away from them, running away from them, and as soon as you get in the house, you close the door and, uh, and you lean your arm just to catch your breath only for a serpent or a venomous snake to bite you. Sin is very close. It's very near. It's, it's right there. And you have to be guarding yourself through the Word of God against this sin. So it talks here about the sin, but it also talks about these good things to come. And the question is, what good things he's referring to? What are these good things? And I can tell you very simply, it is Christ things. It is gospel things. It is kingdom of God things. I mentioned that before, the definition of, of the kingdom of God. And I hope you can remember this and even memorize it because it helps you understand and crystallize what the kingdom of God concept is. It is God's people in God's place under God's rule enjoying God's blessing. C.S. Lewis equate this kingdom of God as the dusk. It is not completely daylight yet. It's not completely dark. It's the in-between. You have a little bit of light, but still some darkness. And that's where we are right now. We are in this here, but not fully yet. We see some light. We don't see the perfection of light yet. And then it talks about sacrifices and how gruesome they are, how painful, how required and mandatory they are, how repetitive they are. How good, but not good enough, they are to the Old Testament saints. They are divinely decreed for a time, those sacrifices. The Old Testament sacrificial system is inherently imperfect. And I will explain that to you, maybe, if you think, try to think of yourself as an Old Testament person in the nation of Israel from 2,000 years ago. Uh, let's say um, that man's name is Zechariah, and he does this sacrifice and obey the law, goes home and still thinks about this sacrifice. And he's faced with these things. 
the value of what I just sacrificed is not nowhere close to the value of me as a man, as according to how I understand the law of God and how it's taught to that Old Testament man, Zechariah, by the rabbis. They also, and he also will start thinking, that sacrifice that I just provided, it's nowhere sufficient to satisfy and pacify the wrath of a holy God. They know who God is. They know who Yahweh is. And when you put it together, I can't think, but, but, but uh, I can't help but think that when this guy goes home after finishing the sacrifice to think about these questions, also that animal did not give consent. There will be an ultimate sacrifice that will willingly and volitionally give up his life for you and I. Romans 11:27 it says this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sin. How then are Old Testament saints saved? If Christ arrives AD what happens to BC? What happens in those times? We will have a chapter dedicated to Old Testament say, uh, saints. Uh, but I can tell you briefly right now, they are saved exactly and precisely just like you and I have been saved by the grace of God. Amen. There's no other different way. It's difficult and maybe easy, I guess. I, I, I probably should say it's, it's a little bit easy to get confused and think, Maybe there should have been, there could have been something else other than Christ to have saved these people. Maybe the sacrifice had something to do with it. I can tell you it is faith through, through grace and trust in Jesus Christ. Here is the word, dimly perceived. They were looking for a savior. They were looking for the Messiah. They know even from the moment when Adam sinned and the promise was given to him that her seed will crush the serpent's head and in the process, his heel will be bruised. There, will be a, there is a promise, and there is a Messiah. There is a Savior that is coming. So dimly perceived, I, I, the way I kind of describe that, when we used to go to New York, we had to, going to Long Island, you have to go through New York City, and from a distance, usually when there is some cloud and a little bit foggy, you can see the outlines of the, of the New York City. Uh, it's kind of dimly perceived from a long distance, but you know it's New York City. And as you continue to approach it, it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. 2000 before the birth of Christ, those people were saved and have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, dimly perceived. Amen. Romans 4 is a great chapter if you want to learn more about how Old Testament saints are saved. They are saved by faith. And Paul very smartly chooses the father of the nation of Israel, Abraham, to give that example. Someone who was born and was granted and credited to him as faith and righteousness even before the law, even before circumcision was ever described in Genesis 17. Genesis 15, the Lord tells Abraham, or the Lord, or the word of God says that his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Now, there is some difficult news also in the first verse when it says, Make perfect those who draw near. How on earth? Well, it's not going to happen on earth. How on earth will we be made perfect? God is not in the business of just fixing a little bit or temporizing things. He is in the business of newness of life. He's in the business of creating things new. He's in the business of taking this heart of stone and putting a heart of flesh 
in you. How can we be perfected? As it says here in the Old Testament, in, the, in this verse, how can we be perfected with this Old Testament sacrifices who are imperfect, who are temporal and not final? Listen to the story of this man that I will again name Zechariah. Uh, there is a, 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 an Old Testament covenant theology professor from England named Alec Mutier. And uh, he portrayed this theoretical story of this man. This man, Zechariah, just returned from presenting his sin offering sacrifice as prescribed exactly in Leviticus 4. He knows that blood must be shed as a sacrifice for sin. And as he comes back into his home after doing this work, his family said to him, Hey, why did you, why did you go to the temple today? Well, I, I, I wanted to make a sin offering because I needed the Lord's forgiveness. And have you been forgiven, Zechariah? Oh, yes. How do you know that you have been forgiven? Because I saw the goat die in my place. But how do you know it was dying in your place? Well, because I laid my hand on his head and I pointed it as my substitute. But why was it your substitute? Zechariah answers, well, that is what the Lord told us to do. But how do you know? How do you know? How do you really know that when the animal died, your sins were forgiven? Zechariah answers, because the Lord promised. Because the Lord promised. Zechariah, that theoretical figure that I present to you from this book, put his hand on the actual root of how he's saved. He knew that it's not this gruesome sacrifice or the shedding of blood. That was just a mere obedience because the Lord said so. But the very thing that would save him from utter bankruptcy and death is the promise of God, Yahweh himself. Amen. Second point in the second verse, it says, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Second part is, the second point of my sermon is, the conscience of believer. Consciousness of sins is the same as conscience of believers in other uh, interpretation or translations. The voice of conscience. Still voice and loud voice we hear about in the Bible. Elijah in 1 King 19, uh, he, the Lord shows him all this um, uh, natural phenomenon, uh, very loud uh, voices and very loud thunder. But then after all that loudness, a small still voice comes upon him and then he sits and listens to the Lord and he tells him what to do. You can contrast that with Paul. I know in the, book of, uh, in the book of Acts, it doesn't exactly say that the Lord spoke to Paul very loudly, but I can't imagine this conversation being very quiet or small, still voice. I think it was pretty vivid, uh, as we see in Acts 9. Why do we then even care about good conscience? That's an obvious question, and the answer is also obvious, because the Bible said so, because we are... Uh, 
called to strive for good conscience for all believers in 1 Timothy 1. It is a qualification for leaders uh, for 1 Timothy 3, 9. I have to preface this by saying that I'm not inviting you to hear a new and fresh revelation from God when you go home because I believe that all the revelation that God decreed for man to have is right here in this book. And I do not believe there's an appendix coming anytime soon. But I believe that the Holy Spirit can quicken us and spare us on through the Word of God to do good deeds. So there are times when I feel drawn to the Word of God at certain points in time where I need to do certain things. I know good conscience will nudge you to do the right things. I feel like... Um, just think of a compass that we are called in this life to always strive for true north. And every time this goes a little bit here, a little bit there, that conscience as a believer will start nudging you. You need to make right this relationship that you have broken. You need to ask for forgiveness. You need to repent from this sin. You need to avoid this thoughts of impurity that you let continue to fester in your mind. That's where the Holy Spirit continues to speak to us through His Word to do the right thing. How can we live with good conscience when the Spirit is at war with the flesh constantly? The Word of God tells us that constantly, as, we, as long as we are in this flesh, there will be a battle raging on every day. Galatians 5 uh, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If I were to summarize what I wanted to say in that particular part about the conscience, because this is a very difficult segment that I, that I, I feel very inadequate even preaching on, because... You feel the tension of wanting to do the right thing and maybe the continuation of remembering sins is a good thing, but in, in a context. What I wanted to say is the stronger and clearer your understanding as a believer of the grace of God for a depraved but regenerated sons and daughters of God, the better at rest your soul will be. The soul that is tormented in that is a soul that is not holding fast to God's grace. I have lived in that big part of my life before I came to the Reformed faith. I have lived in the fear of I'm just going to lose my salvation if one impure thought sits in my mind for a few seconds. I committed the sin and if, my, my, I, if I breathe my last right after this I am done, or should say undone. That's not what the Word of God teaches. Paul says that in Acts 23 verse 1, when he looked intently, when he was called to the council, as he was being questioned, he said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all conscience up to this day. He also says in Acts 24, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And he is the same apostle that also said 
in Romans 7, and listen to this, because he retexts, he says, I have lived all my life with good conscience. And look who's talking, the guy who is breathing murder against the people of the way, Christians, just a few chapters before that. In Romans 7, he says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members, listen to this, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And here's the famous uh, proclamation that he said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And it does not stop there. And thank God it does not stop there. He said, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So he understands. The tension will continue to exist. exist. I strive to do the right things. I strive to obey the law. But that will not be an easy thing. I don't know how long, how many seconds or minutes or days between that phrase, wretched man that I am, and him writing, thanks be to God. I just, I'm I, I, thinking about that. Is that what he was just writing inspired by the Holy Spirit and he continued to write this and didn't take a break, I, I would think, this is just my thinking, that probably that took him a few hours or maybe days or even longer to get to that point, wretched man that I am, and then a revelation that, thanks be to God, it is not me, it is not my job to be perfect. I will not be perfect. Think about it this way also. We are clothed as God's people with the righteousness of Christ. Think of it, this beautiful, white, beautiful garment that you're clothed in as a son and daughter of, of God. Christ Himself. Does it matter what is, how clean or dirty underneath that dress is, or you are at this point? You might have felt like, yeah, I'm kind of clean, 100%, 90%, 50%, never 100%, of course. But it doesn't matter the condition of that man who submits and falls prostrate forth before a holy God and asks to be closed in Christ's righteousness. Remember this in Proverbs 20 verse 9. It should really settle this. Listen to this. I have made my... Who can say? Who can say? I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. If you think the confession time that Pastor Charles led us this morning... You finish that and you have a clean slate right after this, you are mistaken. If you think there will be a moment in time where you will have this epiphany, where you will remember every single sin that you have committed and bring it to Christ for forgiveness, you are mistaken. You will never ever have a, a comprehensive, perfect list of sins before God. So it, that leads you to conclude that you will never have that perfection attained in any confession whatsoever. It is always by His grace that we are saved. It is always by His grace that we are forgiven. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. First John 
the whole New Testament leads us to conclude that in this life, nobody attains sinless perfection. Nobody attains sinless perfection. There are some holiness movements where people believe, and I think erroneously, that they can find this perfection here on earth, i.e. their sanctification has been completed, which I believe argues against everything that the New Testament really teach. Um, but some believe that. I guess that these people have more holiness than Apostle Paul himself. I find that very hard to believe. The last point, then do we remember or forget sins? Do we remember or forget sins? Paul says yes and no to that question, just to confuse it even more. Yes, we should remember, and yes, we should forget. Philippians 3, he says, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the, for the prize. But also in Ephesians 2, he says, Remember, remember, that you were at that, that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So yes, you should remember. Yes, you should forget. And I hope that you don't, you're not confused. Remember that in the context to get even deeper understanding of the grace of God that saved a wretched man like yourself and myself. That's where you remember it. And forget it because God said He remembers your sins no more. Only following the Psalm 51 model, which I think we will talk more about in the next few Sundays, when David recognized in Psalm 51 his sin was only against God, ultimately. He blamed no one. He begged for forgiveness and mercy. And he had the audacity in that Psalm after he murdered uh, the husband of Bathsheba and he committed all these heinous sins that we learned about in the book of Samuel, he in that verse where he's asking for forgiveness and completely broken before a holy God he said, and I want to teach the transgressors your way. And I find that just crazy. And I find that also refreshing because he came to the realization if I'm confessing my sins before God and if I'm trusting his forgiveness if, if I'm covered with His grace, there is no more condemnation. There is no more condemnation as we hear in the uh, epistle to the Romans in chapter 8. Amen. It is important to remember that. The last verse uh, here in verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And I think I covered most of the principles. See, this is really a summary. You have seen this. It is impossible. It is a fool's errand to try to earn it on your own merit, on your own way. It is a fool's errand to try to earn approval by your words. There are, even though we don't see bulls and goats running around churches these days, but there are some contemporary, I would say, contemporary bulls and goats that you and I sometimes run to to draw some appeasement from God. And I pray that you, in your, uh, in your prayer time, you can ask God to show these things to you that you run to, to try to please God, because there is nothing else other than the righteousness of Christ Himself can please God. The author of this song really understood it well. 
Augustus Montague Top Lady, and an interesting guy. I was talking to Richard about him last night. Try to read a little bit of his biography. Uh, he wrote these verses. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed. Here it is. Be of sin the double cure. And praise God for the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. It is not the labor of my hands. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? You can put all the zeal of your body and your energy in the work and the ministry. Your emotions through the tears and the weeping and, and, and regretting all the sins you've done. None of that will grant you the salvation. That zeal and that, those tears, all for sin could not atone. It is not going to atone for your sins. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. I come completely bankrupt, completely naked, completely in debt. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So what is the big picture? What is the main thing? What is the main big picture of the whole Bible? It is fellowship with God. Coram Deo, before the face of God. Imago Dei, in the image of God. God wants fellowship with His people. And you have immediately come to this realization. A holy God and a sinful man. And the chasm is huge. It's wide. He tells Abraham in Genesis 17, Walk before me and be blameless. And I'm sure Abraham wanted to do that. But the word blameless, I'm sure caused Abraham to have a little bit of pause. Blameless. He tells Moses in Leviticus 19, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You have the immediate problem of this chasm that arises. Sin against holiness. Nakedness and bankruptcy against the one who through whom and by whom and to whom all things were created. And there is a solution. And the solution is a covenant. And the covenant is nothing not a document that is written, it's a covenant that must be cut. It's a sacrifice that must be made in the person of Jesus Christ for you and me. Let us pray.